been looking forward to this Sunday for many weeks. I'm so thankful to have Mr. Ronnie Williams with us today. And I just believe that God has something for us, as he does every time that we gather, but especially today. I was gifted a book when I moved here by the Red family, and I finally got around to reading it, written by Mr. Ronnie Williams called Markham Street. And boy, church, when I tell you I couldn't put it down, I truly could not put it down. And then the day that I completed it, I wept so hard. I, I don't know that I've wept that hard in my life. And then for, for about a week afterwards, I was weepy every time that my mind wandered to what I had just read. And as a pastor, as I'm praying over what God might have for us, I knew that we would benefit from hearing from Mr. Ronnie Williams. And I knew that God had something for us to learn from their story. And so I just pray that today will touch you. I also want to let you know that we have 10 copies of his book available. And we have purchased them so that you can get them cheaper. But it's first come, first serve. So Pastor Stephanie will be at the Journey Deeper booth after service. First 10 people get the book for $10. So don't beat one another up. But also, you're going to want to read it. It's also available, available on Amazon. But I want to introduce to you Mr. Ronnie Williams. I forgot to ask you, sir, are you retired? Somewhat. Somewhat. You know, I hear that's typically how it goes, right? But Mr. Ronnie Williams served as vice president of student services and institutional diversity at the University of Central Arkansas. If I knew their mascot, I would do something. Roar. Go Bears. Okay, good. That was so helpful, you guys. Thank you. Wow. All right. Add that to the times I embarrass myself in front of you. But he's author, also the author of the book Markham Street. And so I just hope that your hearts will be ready and prepared to hear what God has to say to us through Mr. Ronnie Williams. Would you make him welcome as he comes forward to share with us today? Thank you, Pastor Thank Jenny. You, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, bless you. Yes. Bless you. Thank you, Pastor Jenny, for that uh, very warm uh, welcome. Also, Pastor Mark. For inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. My wife and my family are here with me, and although this is our first time visiting the church, I feel like we've, we've been here before. Our, our children, uh, my oldest son and his wife, are members of this wonderful congregation, so if I could take just a moment to introduce them. Uh, my oldest son, uh, Tori, and his wife, Tori, yes. I know, I, I said the same thing. Our oldest grandson, Tegan. Trace, Trayson is here somewhere, I think, and Talia. Uh, and then a late arrival, uh, Taya, uh, that surprised everybody. And then, of course, my youngest son is here with me, Greg. And his youngest child, our granddaughter, uh, Remy, She's raising her hand. And of course, uh, Gavin is under the weather and could not be here, along with uh, uh, our other daughter-in-law, Claire, could not be here as well. But uh, 
uh, we thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here to talk um, about uh, our book, Markham Street, and our testimony uh, as it relates uh, to this book. Uh, I can tell you, uh, I, I, I never had a desire to write, okay? Uh, when I was an undergrad at Hendricks College, um, I did not take creative writing lessons, none of that kind of thing, but it, it was by the grace of God uh, that he spoke to me and needed to do something with me, and I'll talk with you in just a few minutes about that. But I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge our editor, uh, Jennifer Hansen, as well. Uh, Jennifer is the mom of my daughter-in-law, Claire, who's married to my youngest son. So as the young people would say, we got the hookup. <laughs> Although I'm somewhat retired from UCI, I remember some of the slang uh, that goes along with that. Uh, but, but it is an honor to be here to talk a, a, a little bit about the book and how God used us um, in this process. It is, um, I always start out talking about the book and telling any group that I talk about what the book is not. I think it's important to try to put, because people will take history and make something ugly out of it. You know, they just will. Especially when it's painful, it's hurtful, it, it, it's ugly. Um, uh, people will labor it, label it and do all kinds of things with it. So I, I, it's important for me to tell you what the book is not. Uh, the book is not intended to cast aspersions on all police officers because police, we need policing. We support policing. We have dedicated men and women who put their lives on the line every day to protect us. However, there are those in every profession that should not be there. They do things, they say things that um, give the profession a bad name. And so this book is not intended to cast aspersions, as I said, on policing in general. What this book is about, it's about a love story. It's a love story uh, that talks about a brother that I rarely knew. I'm the youngest of eight children born to John and D.V. Williams. Actually, it's Johnny Olive Willie Bernice Jones Williams. That was, my, that was my mother's name. And so if you read the book, you'll know that my mother had kind of an interesting name. And so uh, the book, if you read it, and I'm going to be very quick as I go through this, uh, we want to hear from Pastor Jenny as well. She has a, a message to share. Um, but if you read the book, there are four components to the book. There's history. There's healing. There is restoration. And praise God, there's forgiveness. History. My brother Marvin was a patriot, he served in two branches of the military. He served in the Navy, and Greg, if I could, could you pass me my water right there, please? Thank you. Thank you very much. 
And he served in the Air Force as a U.S. paratrooper. Can't believe it, but he did. He spent time jumping out of planes. And on the night of May 5th, 1960, my brother and two siblings, Verna and Carolyn, attended a high school prom in Menifee. My brother was there in support of my sister Verna, who was crowned homecoming queen. And Marvin's wife could not be there because she was seven months pregnant with his second child. And on that night, a tornado hit the community. There were tornadic, tornadic uh, conditions in the area, and as a result of that, the prom had to be suspended uh, early. Marvin and some friends went to Conway, and they went to a very popular place, Markham Street. And that is why we named the book Markham Street. Markham Street was a place in, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s where African-American men and women could, could gather. It was a difficult time. You could not, we, we were living in segregation, it was a difficult time. People did not interact the way we're interacting now. And so that was one of those safe spaces. Marvin was on that street and was, while sitting in his car, he was unlawfully removed from the car, taken to the Faulkner County Jail, and the next morning was found dead after being isolated in a cell that was designated for white, female, white females. The next morning, Marvin had a four-inch fracture to the base of his skull. He had bleeding from his kidneys. He had contusions, abrasions to his face that were visible in the book that we, uh, that, that's in the, um, that we include in the book because we felt it was important to share that with the public. And, and of course, on that same night, a tornado hit our home, struck our home and destroyed our home and everything that we owned. I was injured. And if you're close to me, you'll see a long scar right here. And I was taken to the hospital in Moralton. The next day, we gathered at the location where our home once, was once situated. And my mother's nephew notified her that Marvin was dead. No one ever told us the circumstances surrounding his death. For 24 years, we knew nothing about the circumstances surrounding his death. Not until 1984, August 4th of 1984, a person by the name of Charles Hagney, a one-armed white man who was incarcerated in a cell adjacent to Marvin, could no longer live with himself, and he sent my dad a letter that we include in the book. And in that letter, he tells us what happened to Marvin. I was a grown man, working professionally. Tori was six, Greg was two. And to tell you that it rocked my world would be an understatement. So for the next few years, we spent doing everything we could to get justice for Marvin you'll read about everything that we did in the book. Then there is history, there is healing. To say that Charles Hackney's letter was a gut punch would be an understatement for me. 
So for 30 years, 1985, there was a trial. 2020, came to the state of Arkansas, spent time in our home. Geraldo Rivera spent a couple of weeks in Menifee, spent time in our home covering the story. And of course, if you want to see that segment, we have that segment on my book's webpage if you'd like to see the 2020 segment from 1985. But for, for 30 years, from 1985 to February 5th, 2015, to tell you that I was messed up with being understood. In fact, my wife would tell me he's still a little bit messed up. <laughs> but for 30 years, for 30 years, I compartmentalized my pain, my hurt, my disappointment. I had a job with 122 full-time staff, 12,000 students, 17 departments. I put on a good face. But the pain and the hate had, was compartmentalized. I treated everybody nice. The smile was there. I could shake someone's hand. But every time I would read something or see something, that hate would come up. Can I be very honest with you? I wanted to take the lives of those that hurt my brother. I wanted that. But it took Johnny Olive, Willie Bernice, Jones, Williams, and the grace of God that prevented me from doing that. And I have an entire chapter that's, that's dedicated to mother. It's called Mother's Words. So healing. God spent time healing me of my dysfunction. On February 5th, 2015, at 7 a.m. in the morning, I'm in my little study with all of the Marvin Williams paraphernalia, all of the documents that we uh, chronicled from the case, including the transcripts, all of that sitting in my office and the Lord spoke to me, not out loud, but you know that little steel voice that God just speaks to you and he won't let you alone? God spoke to me and he said, after 30 years, I need for you to write because it's time for healing. I need for you to write. And I got a pad and I took my pen and I started writing. And then after a couple of hours, I asked my wife, who was sleeping, and she finally got up, and I said, I need for you to read this. And she started crying, and I started crying, because I knew God was doing something with me. He was healing me in the process. And for the next five and a half years, I wrote. Now, I'm a technological dinosaur. And my sons would say, Dad, 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 come on now. Why don't you use your laptop? You can cut and paste. You're marking through stuff and writing. He said, Dad, come on now. You put it on your laptop. I said, no, no. One of the departments I had at UCA was the Department of Counseling. And my former director would tell me that in dealing with stress, dep depression, and anxiety, one of the things they would advise their clients to do was to write. Not to type, but to write. 
So there was something spiritually therapeutic happening to me as I was writing those five and a half years. Now, I did after finishing. I did have to transfer all of that stuff to the, to the computer. But God was doing something with me in releasing all of that baggage that I was carrying around. He was working on me. And then, very quickly, I promised my son at 15 minutes, reconciliation. Then there's reconciliation. You'll see that in the book. I needed to repair some relationships that had been broken. Let me tell you, I despised Conway, Arkansas. I hope nobody's from Conway. But everything that we went through, and you'll read it in the book, I would despise Conway, and I didn't like our state. Let me tell you, when you deal with discrimination in any form, gender, religion, race, whatever the form, it, it's depleting. It just, it zaps you. It takes everything out of you, and I want it out. So I go to Kansas City, Missouri. I leave my profession of education. I become a State Farm agent because I was going to make all of this money, buy a home in the subdivision, and live happily ever after. That was not God's plan for me, but that's the plan that I gave to God. And you've heard that saying, right? If you want to make God laugh, you want to put a smile on God's face, tell him what you're going to do. Tell him what your plans are. You'll make him giggle. And so that was not God's plan for my life. He needed for me to, to be reconciled in that very place and space that caused me the greatest pain. He brought me right back to Arkansas, right back to Conway, and said, no, Ronnie, this is where I want you to be because you've got a deal with these issues. I need for you to, re not only reconciliation, but I need to bless you in that very space. And I can't tell you today the number of blessings that have come as a result of acquiescing to God's will. And then, as I promised, Pastor Jenny, I would, I would hold this to 15 minutes. <laughs> and then the other component that you'll read in this book Praise God, is forgiveness. Hmm. As I was writing, I knew the Lord was doing something for me, to me, and through me, because he was playing the tape. I wasn't there in 1960. But he started to reveal some stuff to me when I started the process of forgiveness. He started to play the tape. And when you read the book, you'll see that I take some liberty. It's not really liberty. It's God speaking to me. And he showed me stuff in the transcript. I have a transcript from 1960 the corners transcript, I still have it in my possession, the original transcript, that those that, were, that participated in the cover-up never intended to release. 
but one of the main perpetrators carried in his possession the very document that would explain the extent to which he was involved in the cover-up. Does that make sense? He carried it in his file cabinet. And one of his um, administrative assistants released that document to the state police, and we were able to get it through the process of FOI. And so in that document, the Lord starts to play the tape, and he starts to show me stuff that I write in the book. But then, when I get to, I don't know, Connie, I guess it's 95%, and you know, I, I realized that I did not in, introduce my wife, Connie. <laughs> we got to ride back to Menifee. <laughs> and I want to sleep in my own bed. <laughs> my wife, Connie, of 49 years, <laughs> Pastor Jenny, I was about to really mess up, but I called Connie into my little study and I said, I know how God wants me to end this book. And she said, how? I said, aspiring to forgive. She said, really? I said, yes. And it was then that God gave me the epilogue. If you read the book, don't go to the epilogue. Start at the beginning and then go to the epilogue. I want you to know God could have given us the epilogue 30 years prior to my writing the book. But he said, you can't handle that, Ronnie. You were wanting to shoot people and kill people and fight with people in the streets. I can't give you this until you get to the place where you can forgive. To give the folk who took your brother's entire life story, father, son, productive citizen, patriot, hardworking, and all of that was reduced in 48 hours to a drunkard, someone who wandered into the city, and that's his life story. I couldn't give you the epilogue, Ronnie, until you were able to say, Lord, I no longer hold the hate that I had in my heart for these people because you've done something with me. You've changed me. Now I'm going to give you the epilogue. I knew the person who gave me the story for 20-something years. She could have given me that story anytime, anywhere, anytime, but not until I got to the close of the book. He said, now you're ready. And that's why when you read in the book, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment in the Gospel of John, 13th chapter, 34th and the 35th verse that I include in the book, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you've got some stuff. You've messed up. You're not, you're, you're not perfect. I've given you. Why? Why? That all men will know that you are my disciples.
That's what distinguishes you, Ronnie, from the world. Not some political affiliation, not some crazy red state, blue state, not some other something that divides us, but that you know that you are mine. Because if you are mine, you're going to treat people right. You're going to love people. You're not going to mistreat people. You're going to live for me. And so let me tell you, those four components forever changed my life, and I will forever continue along this walk of forgiveness. God bless you. Thank you for allowing me to share. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Go buy the book, okay? I promise you want to read it. And don't skip to the epilogue as much as you're going to want to. But it is the best part of the whole book. You know, I was thinking this morning, one of the unfortunate things that I think we see in humanity sometimes is something about listening to someone else's story can feel almost threatening. Like their story threatens the power of ours. Like if I listen to your story, then but listen to my story. You know what I'm saying? And I just thought, Jesus, the man who was crucified on the cross for us, listens to our measly stories with grace and love. And what a gift it is to hear other people's stories and just say, I hear you. Not now you hear mine and let me one-up yours, but I hear you. And as your brother and sister in Christ, I walk with you in that story. And so I, I'm just challenged. And Mr. Williams talked about something that I think is really important. And honestly, it baffles me as I follow him, his story. I, I don't even feel worthy of talking about this idea of forgiveness and healing because murder is not a part of my story. But church, I feel strongly that God has healing and forgiveness for us. And so I, I want to take a minute, as we continue on this theme of prayer, as we are literally on this journey allowing God to strengthen our vision of prayer and our understanding of prayer, I want to talk about this idea of healing. One of the things that I want you to know about the Church of the Nazarene is one of our articles of faith is literally about our belief in divine healing. And so if you study the Church of the Nazarene theologically at all, we believe in the healing power of God. And so in the middle of this mystery of prayer, right, last week I had you all raise your hands testifying that you have prayed prayers that have gone 
unanswered, right? And so we stand in this mystery of prayer, but church, this is true. And this is in your notes. We, as the people of God, have given our lives to a God who heals. We, as people who follow King Jesus, we serve a God who heals. Do you believe that? This this God whom we serve heals physically, emotionally, mentally. God heals whole societies. He heals families. He heals churches. And this God who we serve, he, he heals instantaneously. And he also heals through modern medicine. And by golly, church, God also heals through wilderness journeys. Through times when we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to encounter the healing of God. And so I I just want to take a few moments before we turn to a time of reflection and prayer and build our faith today using scripture. Just bolster our faith with the word of God. And I'm going to read some familiar texts today. If you've been following Jesus for very long, some of these stories might feel really familiar. And my prayer as we hear them today is that we will be captivated like somebody who has heard the good news for the very first time. Amen? So let's start with an Old Testament story. We're driving right into the exciting part, but there's some context to this that I would encourage you to go to read. But let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of our Lord, church. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. This was a prophet during that day. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message, Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Listen to this, church. This is relatable. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Verse 12. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar, come on, biblical language, better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in in a rage. Sometimes the healing doesn't happen the way we think it should. But his officers are like, dude, calm down. They tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, Go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. 
Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is a God in all the world except Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The word of our Lord. Healed instantly, skin healed through the prophet. All for the sake that the people who followed Naaman might know that the God of Israel is the God of the world. Let's look at the gospel accounts, some of Jesus' activity. Matthew 4, verses 23 through 24, we see this. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Verse 24. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. That's not fake news, church. And then if we continue on in the story of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26 As Jesus was saying this, the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Just then, a woman who had suffered for 12 years. Y'all, you think she prayed a few times for healing in those 12 years? suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe, for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's house, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, he told them. This girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. After the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. It's not fake news. It's a real story of real healing. But you know, it didn't stop with Jesus. The apostles, after Jesus ascended victoriously and was placed the right hand of God the Father, the apostles carried on this legacy of healing. In Acts 5, 15 through 16, we see that it says this. As a result of the apostles' work, Sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as they went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits. And they were all, what church? Healed. 
It didn't stop there. The apostles continued in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 11. While they were in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached. Looking straight at him, Paul realized he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up. And the man jumped up to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul has done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. I think they missed it a little bit, but they got the power. Real stories in God's word of the healing power of God. And then you see Paul, as Paul was educating the early church, when he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit that are given to the people of God, he has the audacity to say this, 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 9, the same Spirit gives great faith to another, and to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles. I have small faith sometimes, church, but that is in the good book of our good Lord. The healing miracles of Jesus. The distribution of the gifts of the Spirit that says some are gifted with the power of healing and the power to produce miracles. That is hard to wrap my mind around, but I know it to be true. And then in, in the wisdom of Proverbs, Proverbs 4 says this, my child, pay attention to what I say. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart. For they bring life to those who find them and healing to their whole body. A lot of the stories we've just read have testified to, to physical healings. But I want us to be reminded that God's care and love for us goes to our whole body, our heart, our emotions, our unforgiveness, our mind, our physical ailments. His healing power can address it all. And yet last week, we mentioned and acknowledged attention, church, in the act of prayer. We recognize this mystery in the reality that healing doesn't always happen. That healing doesn't always look or feel miraculous. That healing sometimes involves us taking uncomfortable steps of faith. I think probably Mr. Williams would testify it would have been easy at times if God had just waved his magic wand. But there was healing in the journey with Jesus. The wrestling through the valley of the shadow of death. The walking through the wilderness with God. There's this mystery that healing sometimes involves one prayer of faith. 
And other times it involves 400 prayers of faith. But the same truth remains. We have given our lives to a God who heals. Paul speaks something so relatable. And in this room, maybe you're feeling this way. You're like, here she goes. We're going to pray for healing, and it's not going to happen again. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul testifies that he knows how we feel. Paul said three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ can work through me. And so today, church, as I stand before you proclaiming the healing power of God, we stand in this tension space together. We hold in tension these bold examples in Scripture where God is the God of instantaneous healing. And testimonies like Paul's, where the, the gift of healing is actually, no, your healing is going to come because that thing ain't going away. And it's going to be a part of producing your healing. And then our own lived experiences that sometimes we pray and it doesn't go the way we think. And yet we know we have given our lives to a God who indeed is capable of healing. And so we continue to seek and ask and cry out to the one who is capable. And what a vivid example in, in Mr. Williams' story of, of a 30-year journey through heartache and unfairness and cruelty and lies that God might journey faithfully and it might produce a story that brought his family freedom and healing and has the potential to encourage our own faith. So I'm going to invite Amy to come up and play on the piano for us because we are going to take some time to pray prayers of healing today. We've got anointing oil prepared and we're going to pray prayers of faith together in this place. And we're also going to stand with one another when the healing and the forgiveness and the bitterness, it all takes longer than just, just this one day of prayer. We're going to stick with one another when it takes 400 prayers. But I know of no better place to start seeking the healing of God than at the cross and coming to the table of grace of the Lord. So I'm going to invite my pastors to take their place to prepare to serve communion. And as we think about healing, I think about the words of Peter. In his letter to the church, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this about the gift that Jesus Christ gave us. Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, 
you are healed.